This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is brought to you by TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new nonfiction books to read, but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for, and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and... (laughs) Treat yourself, that's good. And support an indie too, and TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukura. We're recording on Wednesday, July 1st. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I am doing great. We've got a holiday weekend coming up, although this podcast will be released after the holiday weekend. So uh, we will have stories in our heads from the previous days at the point when this comes out. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) It did a little bit, I think. I was trying to be grandiose, and it didn't work at all. (laughs) That's okay. Are you doing anything fun for the holiday weekend? Um, no. (laughs) I was just, like, (laughs) pondering. I was like, wait, is there – no. There has been some talk of some socially distanced grilling uh, on a friend's deck, but I don't know if that will come to fruition. If not, then I will be at home reading and watching TV, which is pretty much like every weekend. What about you? (laughs) We are going to go up to my parents' cabin again this year. Going to do our best socially distancing, staying in different – they've got, like, an out building with – bedrooms and stuff. So and, and it should be really nice all weekend so we can all be outside and set apart. But yeah, gonna be up at the lake, gonna sit by the lake, read some books, go on a boat, potentially maybe see some fireworks. And yeah, should be very chill, hopefully. That's just living the life right there. Yeah. I feel like living in Chicago, I hear fireworks every night, and I never get to see them. So it's just like the slightly negative part of the fireworks. Yeah, that's not the fun part. Yeah, the one of the families who lives on the lake we, we go to, they put on a really big fireworks show every year, 4th of July, and it is ostentatious, but it is, I guess, one thing that is nice about having rich neighbors is they'll put on a, a fancy fireworks show for you. <laughs> I think one of the few times that ostentatious could be like just used solely in a positive light is with fireworks. That's true. That's true. The more ostentatious, the better, truly. Exactly. Because it benefits all the people who can see it as opposed to perhaps a only select group. Do you have any reading catch-up talk? Did that make sense again? I'm just going to keep saying words and then being like dubious about their... Yes. Oh my gosh, I almost said logicity. Oh my gosh, what is happening today? Okay, anyway, have you read anything? That's That was the question. That was the question. 
Yes, I have. Uh, I have been reading, actually. I read more in the last couple of weeks than I have in such a long time, um, which is refreshing and and fun. But I mentioned uh, at the end of the last podcast that my next read was going to be Hidden Valley Road by Robert Kolker, which is a book about a family of 12, 10 boys and one girl, and six of the 10 brothers were diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so it's a story of this family and then also their impact on research around schizophrenia and mental health. They became very involved with the National Institutes of Mental Health and their family history and experiences uh, really informed a lot of research around schizophrenia. Um, so I started reading that one. I'm probably, I don't know, a third-ish of the way through. And it is it is so good so far. He just, um, every chapter is kind of an in-depth look at one member of the family and um, kind of jumps around between different members of the, the family, different boys and then their sisters and their parents and all of that. Um, and then alternates chapters with information about uh, the history of mental health research. And so um, you're getting this very specific story about these brothers and, and what just happens to them. And then also a look at how we have viewed schizophrenia over time, which is in a lot of ways very strange and it's a difficult mental illness to try and wrap your head around. So um, I'm finding that one really fascinating and it feels like a weird book to bring on vacation, but I'm going to bring it to the lake with me. (laughs) So I know that you talked about what this book was about on the last episode and yet I have been harboring the idea every time I look at this title that it is about the Hidden Valley Ranch family. (laughs) Are you saying it has (laughs) Like I thought maybe that family was known for having schizophrenia, but, like, they also had their ranch money. So, um, no. Okay. Hidden Valley Ranch dressing has nothing to do with this story. But I I have looked at it several times and been like, Hidden Valley Ranch, and then had to be like, no, 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 no. Hidden Valley Road (laughs) is where they lived. Oh. (laughs) Well, okay. That, you know what? If, if, If listeners had a question, that's now been cleared up. So that's great. Excellent. And you also have been reading, I believe, a little bit. Yes. A little tiny bit. Other than for the podcast, I my reading has gone way down. So my book club pick for my book club was The Woman's Hour, which we talked a little bit about last episode and how overall, I think Elaine Weiss, it's about the 19th Amendment and the final days of you know trying to win it in Tennessee by having Tennessee ratify because they were the 36th state. And I had some slight reservations, but overall felt like Elaine Weiss did a good job of telling the story. I will say after finishing it, I, w- <laughs> I still liked it and I still thought it was very well researched. There's still sort of the issue that she falls back a little too much on the Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony version of events and she leaves out the Women's Christian Temperance Union entirely and their role in bringing over middle of the road and conservative women to the side of suffrage. But also she is so into Carrie Chapman Cat. <laughs> and so obviously on the side that I was like, is she in like the pocket of of like big League of Women voters? Like it's so marked in the book. And I I know this mainly because I also read Alice Paul and the Battle for the Ballot. And that is entirely like it's pretty it's a little longer of a time span, but it's it's Alice Paul's, you know, side of things. And Alice Paul is like throughout the book, it's just like she was in D.C. still trying to raise money. And like she's barely talked about compared to Carrie Chapman Cat is constantly set up as this hero who's just trying her best all the time. 
And I'm not saying that that's possibly not true, but <laughs> also the Elaine Weiss will like reference some very racist things that Carrie Chapman Cat said and kind of constantly frames it as like, she didn't really believe this, but for political expediency, she had to say it. And I was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, you can acknowledge that this person who you deeply admire also had some very troubling things that she said and maybe also believed. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I think if you go in just being like, oh, maybe I'll not 100% believe everything she says about Carrie Chapman Cat, who overall, again, did a lot of good things, but also did some very bad things, then I think it's a book worth reading. It's definitely one of the more readable women's suffrage history books. And this, you know, in the centenary, uh, if you're going to pick one up, it's it's a good one on a short list. The Woman's Hour. <laughs> Excellent. I always appreciate your in-depth thoughts about women's suffrage and, and all of that because I know you know a lot more about it than I do. So that's a good perspective because I liked that book, but I definitely didn't pick up on the same kinds of concerns, I think, just because I'm not as deeply read in that area. So very cool. So uh, this week's episode is sponsored by the book Becoming Duchess Goldblatt, a memoir by Anonymous, which is coming out from HMH Books. So Becoming Duchess Goldblatt is a book that's two stories, uh, that of the reclusive real-life writer who created a fictional character out of loneliness and thin air, and that of the magical Duchess Goldblatt herself, a bright light in the darkness of social media. Fans around the world are drawn to her grace's voice, her wit, her life-affirming love for all humanity, and the fun and friendship of the community that sprung up around her. So at Duchess Goldblatt is a Twitter account that represents an 81-year-old literary icon, author of a book called An Axe to Grind. Uh, and she, on Twitter, has brought people together in her name in bookstores and museums, concerts and coffee shops, and along the way brought real friends home. So uh, at Duchess Goldblatt has more than 30,000 Twitter followers, uh, many of whom are established authors and big names in the literary community, people like Celeste Ng, Elizabeth McCracken, Curtis Sittenfeld, Jennifer Weiner, Lauren Groff, Alexander Che, Jamie Attenberg, and many, many others. So the Duchess's fans engage with her. They send her gifts, post about her, bake things for her, retweet and apply to her every day. And um, so they're going to be very excited about this book that is coming out. Uh, the Duchess has a funny and sharp voice, and the book will bring a lot of that. Um, and it is a great potential gift for your literary friend if they need something funny and life-affirming and to prove that Twitter is not entirely a dumpster fire. Uh, so that book is Becoming Duchess Goldblatt, a memoir published by HMH Books. I bought a toy of a of a dumpster fire. I just wanted to say. <laughs> it's like a little dumpster with a smiley face and it's on fire. And I bought it through some kind of designer toy website <laughs> this last week. I want that so bad. That is the symbol of 2020, truly. Is exactly. A smiling dumpster fire. <laughs> funny. All right. So normally our next segment would be nonfiction in the news, but most of the nonfiction news this week is about books related to President Trump, uh, either John Bolton's book and all of the revelations that are coming out about that or a lawsuit about a book that is potentially coming out later this summer from a family member who is going to expose more about him. And we just didn't feel like going into the details because it's the world is hard enough without spending a lot of time talking about the president more. So we are going to skip that while acknowledging that that is happening. And if you are interested, you can certainly do some Googling and find out more. And so with that, we're going to just jump into new books because that is more fun and exciting. So Alice, you have the first new book for this week, which looks awesome. 
It is awesome. And it is another one where I'm like, ooh, the cover is nice. Okay. (laughs) So it is Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century, edited by Alice Wong. So this book starts off with a quote by Neil Marcus, which is, Disability is not a brave struggle or courage in the face of adversity. Disability is an art. It's an ingenious way to live. Which I was like, that is awesome. Right? Like, just Mm -hmm. kicking it off. Here's a reframing of how you're seeing this as possibly like an able-bodied person. So it's a it's a collection of essays from a wide variety of different viewpoints. And this was started because Alice Wong created the Disability Visibility Project in 2014. She partnered with StoryCorps to record oral histories. It was originally planned as this one-year campaign leading up to the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that would that happened in 2015. So we're now at the 30th anniversary. So this book is kind of to coincide with that. And if you've ever heard of things being like people saying like, oh, is this ADA compliant? Like that's what this, that was the Americans with Disabilities Act, which again, 1990 is when that happened. Before that, there was not really a law for that. This was uh, a civil rights law of great importance. So again, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary this year. And for that, Alice Wong brought together these voices. Um, Some of the titles of the essays are The Erasure of Indigenous People in Chronic Illness, The Isolation of Being Deaf in Prison, Nurturing Black Disabled Joy, How to Make a Paper Crane from Rage, which is one of my favorite titles, Mm -hmm. and To Survive Climate Catastrophe, Look to Queer and Disabled Folks. It's a really good essay collection book. Like if you feel like you've kind of hit your limit of like collections of essays, I would still encourage you to pick this one up. The writing is really good. The stories are really good. (laughs) And it's, again, I feel like what she talks about in the book is that we do, these are voices that we don't often hear in the culture. And this collection is, is helping change some of that. So super recommend it. And then if you're interested in kind of going further along that line, there is also a book called A Disability History of the United States by Kim E. Nielsen, uh, published by Beacon Press, which is, you know, kind of looking, taking that whole, like, how do we reframe the history of our country if you're from the U.S.? from the point of view of a particular group, in this case, um, disabled people. So again, the new book is Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century, edited by Alice Wong. Those titles you shared are so good. Like, they're just so specific, you know? And I think that specificity Mm -hmm. in the stories really must be, must make them really great to read. So very good pick. I'm excited about that one. All right, um, so my first pick is uh, called A Most Beautiful Thing, The True Story of America's First All-Black High School Rowing Team by R. Shea Cooper, uh, which came out June 30th from Flatiron Books. So this is a story about an all-black high school rowing team. Um, So R. Shea Cooper, the author, grew up on the west side of Chicago in the 1990s. Um, He went to a mostly black high school, and his kind of early life and growing up is a lot of what you might expect if you're hearing about a teenager who grew up on the west side of Chicago. Um, There were gangs in his neighborhood and on his street corners. Um, There were drug addicts in his building. Um, His mom was an addict who was kind of in and out of their lives for a long time until she finally found Christianity and um, converted and then um, overcame her addiction and moved through that. 
Arche was this really quiet kid who wrote a lot of poetry and wanted to be a chef and had a few friends, but mostly kept to himself until um, one day at his school, he sees a flyer inviting people to join a crew team, which is a rowing team. And this is a newly formed team that's being funded by this guy named Kurt, who was this champion rower um, and then who got a lot out of rowing when he was a kid and uh, a student. And so he wanted to try and bring that to um, this Black high, mostly black high school in Chicago. And so in addition to like helping the, the teenagers learn how to row and participate in competitive rowing, they wanted to learn about leadership and academics and job skills and all these other kinds of things. So Cooper decides that he wants to join this team and he participates. And the whole memoir is about his time being part of this group, um, what it was like to learn to row, having never done that before. Like many of the, I think almost all of the people who, you know, came in and out of the team at various times, like didn't know how to swim before they like got in the boat and were trying to learn that. So it's about that. It's about what it's like to be an all-black rowing team competing in an almost entirely white sport and against white teams that are better funded and more used to participating in this kind of event. Ten about, you know, being a teenage boy trying to keep focused on a sport while having a lot of different types of distractions in their life. It's about how the, joining the team allowed him the opportunity to travel, to meet new people, and have all these new experiences he just never would have gotten. And I just, I thought this was such a really wonderful story. It's not as triumphant as maybe the, like, jacket copy makes you want to think. Like, I don't know. I feel like when you read sports stories, like inspirational sports stories, it's always about how they, like, succeeded and, like, won everything. And this is really not about that. Like, the rowing and the competitive part of it is not the most important part of this story, which I think is something important to know going in because otherwise it feels a little bit like, oh, why aren't they winning? But that's really not, like, it doesn't matter that they're not winning crew races exactly, like they're getting other things out of this experience. But it just is really, um, really touching. And just this really interesting story that I think we have never really heard otherwise and, and understanding like what it is like to try something completely new and use that to connect with other people. And I, I really liked that parts of it. The writing is not spectacular, but it's it's quite good. And it is telling a story that I really enjoyed. So um, I definitely recommend this one. I thought it was a really just kind of uplifting and interesting book to pick up. So that is A Most Beautiful Thing, The True Story of America's First All-Black High School Rowing Team by R. Shea Cooper. I'm glad you talked about that one. I mean, I, you know, I love like teams gathering together mm-hmm, kind mm-hmm. of stories, despite never having played sports as a child <laughs> or youth. I just, yeah, no, that looks really good. My next pick is The Multifarious Mr. Banks, From Botany Bay to Q, The Natural Historian Who Shaped the World by Toby Musgrave. It's out from Yale University Press. What a title. What a title. Oh my gosh. Can we just give props to that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we haven't talked about our love of subtitles <laughs> in a while. But man, and also saying the multifarious Mr. Banks is very satisfying. Mm-hmm, and I recommend mm-hmm. that people say it out loud to themselves right now. This is so it also has a fantastic cover. So these things together, I was like, I will talk about this book. The multifarious Mr. Banks is about Joseph Banks, which who is he? Great. Yes. Um, he made his name on the 1766 natural history expedition to Newfoundland and Labrador. He also took part in, you might have heard of Captain James Cook, 
the ship The Endeavor. Well, Joseph Banks was on that ship. And he also held the position of president of the Royal Society for over 40 years. He was really close friends with King George III and uh, advised him on the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. And he also sent botanists around the world to collect plants. Like this was the 1700s. This is when they were really doing that because people were like, I need to collect things and I need to label everything. Um, because it was the Age of Enlightenment and everyone wanted to do that. But um, so because of that, he made Q basically like the world's leading botanical gardens, uh, at least in the 18th century. I mean, I feel like he has a complicated legacy, which, you know, the book kind of gets into. So he advocated British settlement in New South Wales and the colonization of Australia and the establishment of Botany Bay as a place for the reception of convicts, which means basically he is responsible for or at least semi-responsible for England colonizing Australia and New South Wales. And that's not good. So, you know, I don't... But with that, he's also credited with introducing eucalyptus and acacia to uh, at least the... Well, it says the Western world, right? So... But at least England, and then I, you know, spreading from there, which it's like, I, I mean, I enjoy eucalyptus, but at what cost? Okay, so he, oh, one of the other more interesting tidbits that they talk about in the book is how he was responsible for organizing the voyage that the mutiny on the bounty was like oh. based on like that or that is the real story you know like so they were mm-hmm. going the actual trip was to move breadfruit from the south pacific to the caribbean and during that captain william bligh right they had the mutiny and that but like the person who like got him together was uh joseph banks mm. so it all it's it almost feels like a conspiracy theory and like all these <laughs> different like threads it's like it all comes back to him <laughs> So, which is probably why the title is The Multifarious Mr. Banks. But um, it's just, you know, if you want to read like an 18th century biography of a dude who did a lot of things that are still like having echoes today, then uh, I recommend The Multifarious Mr. Banks from Botany Bay to Q, the natural historian who shaped the world by Toby Musgrave. That's hilarious. I would not have been interested in that book until you talked about it. And now I'm like, I might I might read that. That, that could be like <laughs> What an interesting multifarious kind of fellow. Uh, good title. <laughs> I am not confident in my knowledge of the definition of that word. <laughs> Wait, I looked it up. Many and of various types. Yeah. Okay, great. Oh, there we go. Multifarious. All right. Uh, so my last pick is uh, called Of Bears and Ballads, An Alaskan Adventure in Small Town Politics by Heather Lundy. And it's out June 30th from Algonquin Books. And this is a book that uh, I feel like maybe is very particular to me, but I think that other people may like it too. So after the 2016 election, Heather Lundy, who's uh, an author, she's written books before this. That's why she's an author, not just because she wrote this book. Anyway, she's an, an author and kind of public speaker. She, After the 2016 election, she decided that she was going to run for a seat on the assembly in her small town of Haines, Alaska, which is essentially like running for city council. And so Haines is this really small town. Um, it's accessible only by boat or plane from Juneau, Alaska, but small town politics is not always small. And so she decides that she's going to run for assembly because um, it's kind of a a lot of people have run for assembly at other times because it's a small town. And so everybody sort of takes their turn. I think uh, she says that her husband was on assembly at one point previously in the past. So like a lot of people have done that. So she decides to run partially because there's some big issues coming up that she's really into. 
And so as you would expect, like things in a small town are not as sort of chummy as they might appear. Um, Lundy sort of represents kind of a more progressive seat on the council in the sense that she supports things like the library and the public pool and more funding for schools and in a, a kind of a controversial issue protecting the environment over development in the town over this big harbor development project. And so this whole book is uh, just a bunch of little essays about her time serving on the assembly. Um, she gets into some kind of pieces of uh, city structure and intricacies. There's a whole chapter kind of talking about the importance of Robert's Rules of Order and why that brings sort of some camaraderie and like politeness to uh, the meetings that use it. And also it's kind of the kind of big scary issues that they deal with. There's this huge debate about the expansion of the fishing boat harbor in the town um, that gets so heated that there are secret Facebook groups started so that people can like organize against the council and the members who voted against this expansion project. Um, they eventually get a petition to do a recall of Lendy and two other city council members for particularly their votes against this project. And all of this just like very big stuff. They at one point like seemingly out of nowhere fire their city manager, which was shocking to me. And it was kind of shocking to other people too. And so uh, just like a really fun book getting into some of the like weirdness of small town politics. Um, and I have to admit, like I have a particular affinity for this story because in my previous life, as I was the editor of a small town newspaper. And so I went to many, many city and county and school meetings like these. Uh, and so I could sort of put myself back there and like see the different types of people and how these things would have played out in the city councils and uh, stuff that I covered. And so I just love kind of that stuff. And so I was really drawn to that whole part of the story. It just made me really nostalgic and kind of missed that part of my career. Um, and so like, if that's not your thing, your mileage may vary on this book, but I thought it was really charming and fun. And just like, it's interesting to see the ways that like very dramatic Things that don't seem dramatic to the outside can be really dramatic to people when you're in the middle of it. And, but that also, like in small towns, you kind of get over it eventually. And, like, you can disagree pretty vehemently about something like, you know, whether a, a construction project should be permitted, but then still, like, be friends and say hello in the grocery store. So, yeah, I, I liked this book. I thought it was fun. Of Bears and Ballads and Alaskan Adventure in Small Town Politics by Heather Lindy. And that's got like a jaunty yellow cover, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, it does. It does. I remember liking that one. With bears voting. Oh, yeah, bears! Because Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yep. Every time I say Alaska now, I think about the wonderful drag queen from RuPaul's Drag Race. And just, <laughs> it's, it's much better than the former Sarah Palin Associations. Anyway, okay. Our next sponsor, uh, I would like to talk to you about page chaser which uh okay so what is page chaser great question unless you're already familiar but bear with me it is a bookish community for people who are looking for a spot of positivity on the bookish corner of the internet which aren't we all uh they have a book of the month every month and july's pick is the wondering years how pop culture helped me answer life's biggest questions by knox mccoy this is a, a humorous look at how pop culture often complements someone's spiritual wanderings and can strengthen your personal faith so like see uh for example me with rupaul's drag race uh which i feel like definitely complements my spiritual wanderings the author is uh very funny he shares his own personal story throughout the book and uh if you want to sort of see books like that or just like check out page chaser they are at it's really easy pagechaser.com that's p-a-g-e chaser 
com. Thank you for sponsoring. Excellent. That sounds really interesting. All right. So we will shift gears into our kind of uh, themed segment for this week. And so we thought this week we would do some books that are related to travel. Since we are still in a situation in which it is not feasible to travel very far or to very exotic places, um, which is something that many of us often do in the summer or aspire to do <laughs> in the summer, depending on your uh situation. So we thought we would just do some books about travel. So either books set in places we wish we could travel to or books about travel specifically. So uh, I think we each interpreted these a little bit differently. But um, I went more with books in places that I wish that I could go. Um, They're not necessarily travel books, but they're set in places that I'm excited about. So um, the first one I want to talk about is a memoir called From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembi Locke. And so this is a kind of a love story, a travel story, a food story, um, all sorts of good stuff. So Tembi Locke is an actress, uh, and she met her husband, Saro, uh, in Florence, Italy when she was a college student. And they had this relationship that was just like love at first sight. Like they ran into each other and just hit it off immediately. And so uh, they got married and they moved back to the United States because she's an actress and so needed to be in the United States to do that. And they got married. But Sorrow's uh, traditional Sicilian family did not approve of his decision to marry a black American woman. And so they basically disowned him for a time and they did not attend the wedding and did not speak for years. So Tembi and Sorrow built careers, adopted a daughter, uh, returned to Sicily trying to reconcile with his family, which eventually they did, and things seem like they're going really well, but then Sorrow uh, gets cancer, and so he battles cancer for about 10 years before he passes away. So this memoir is sort of their love story, um, but it, then it's also kind of parallels with a memoir about um, Tembi's experience after losing her husband. She, after he passes away, she returns to Sicily several times. That's all she writes about traveling back to spend time with his family and to travel around Italy. There's sections in it about food and how her connection to Sorrow, who was a chef, is through food and some of those experiences. Her experiences being a mother to a daughter who's lost her father and kind of trying to become a single parent and traveling around with her. Um, and it's just, it's really, it's beautiful. She is a lovely writer. Um, I'm listening to the audiobook and she narrates it and it's just really, really moving. I like the way that the book kind of alternates between um, their love story and some of their experiences as a young married couple and then her experiences with losing him and returning to Sicily and uh, parenting her daughter. I just think it's really beautiful. And there's some lovely descriptions of traveling around Italy and eating gelato and having, you know, all this pasta and stuff like that, that I think uh, made me really want to get out there and eat spaghetti and stuff. So that is From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembi Locke. Oh, that sounds so nice. Wow. Yeah, we did go different directions with this prompt. <laughs> so my my pick, my first pick, is Unfamiliar Fishes by Sarah Vowell, which I was like, I had a couple thoughts on once I had picked it, which one was I was like, why do I think of this as Sarah Vowell's latest work, which I realized her last one was uh, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, which mm. I didn't really like. So that would be why I <laughs> disregarded that one. But then also I was like, gosh, this came out in 2011. Oh, my gosh. Unfamiliar Fishes. Yeah, I know. So nine years ago. And I still have like very vivid memories of like I went to the book signing, like where she was at the temple, like the Frank Lloyd Wright Temple in Oak Park in Chicago, like outside Chicago. Um, and because she was like, I love the architecture. It's an all concrete church. It's very interesting. Anyway, this is beside the point. So what is Unfamiliar Fishes about? My actual point, I'm going to take another sidebar here, is 
that my opinions on this book are nine years old. And I should, <laughs> I should probably review it again, but I think it does still say some really good things. So Sarah Val, right, she does like a kind of history combined with travel type of narrative. Like that's her, her shtick uh, in the main. So Unfamiliar Fishes, she decided to focus on the history of Hawaii, more particularly focusing on the 19th century when the U.S. colonized and invaded uh, and then annexed, which uh gosh so the plus of this book is that well not for my cousin was that at her bridal shower when they said she was like oh i'm going to hawaii for my honeymoon i was like oh let me tell you all about how we illegally annexed it at the end of the 19th century and should not be there yeah that was that was fun for everyone so essentially she she talks about how sarah val talks about how in 1898 Hawaii colonized, not Hawaii, sorry, the United States. Can you imagine? That would be great. Uh, The United States colonized a bunch of different countries and like made them territories. So this was Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Guam. And then they first invaded Cuba and then the Philippines. This was like 1898, which is nuts. So she decided to focus on Hawaii because she thinks that that story is kind of like the most interesting. So she talks about the arrival of the New England missionaries there in 1820. And then the impression I got from the book was that the missionaries kind of coexisted okay with the people of Hawaii. And then their children were just awful, like truly terrible, like the children and then the grandchildren. So this, the coup d'etat that happened uh, was led by the missionary sons. It happened in 1893. Queen Lilu Okalani was overthrown. And this sort of leads up to the 1898 annexation. So she, Queen Lilu Okalani, was trying to establish a stronger monarchy. And then Americans, under leadership of Samuel Dole, yes, as in Dole Pineapple. Again, this all goes straight to the top. <laughs> he deposed her in 1893. And then President McKinley used like, I think it was like a congressional resolution, which normally was used to be like, we resolve that it's Fred's birthday. And instead they were like, we resolve to annex Hawaii. Like it was so weird. So President McKinley annexes Hawaii and it becomes a territory in 1900. And Samuel Dole, that same pineapple Dole man, became its first governor. So it's just the whole, and there's like a bunch of other stuff, right? About like Hawaiian culture. She talks about, oh no, what is that? food that is everywhere and it's got rice and it's from Hawaii and it was used because the Japanese workers would bring it in like a lunch. Someone's yelling right now at the podcast what the name of this food is. I don't know. We have like a million restaurants for it now in in Chicago and I frequently order it. Anyway, it's where you have rice and fish and various things like kind of stacked on top of each other. And it was like the stacking was done because she talks about this in the book, um, because it was like a convenient way of packing a lunch, basically, right? Because you would like get everything just in like one container. But anyway, it's a really interesting history and will allow you to say fun things at bridal showers. Uh, or when, pe- <laughs> when people are like, uh, yeah, I'm going to Hawaii. You can be like, oh, there's a little info. Poke. That's it. It's poke. Anyway, the food is poke. It's very good. So if you're interested in learning more about the history of the U.S.'s invasion of Hawaii and subsequent annexation and taking over as a state in the 50s, read Unfamiliar Fishes by Sarah Vowell. 
I think this is an excellent pick for many reasons. Like, first of all, Saraval is really funny, so it'll be a good, like, like, good fun book to read. Second, I like the way that she uses travel in her books and sort of combines uh, history and travel. And then three, I definitely would love to travel to Hawaii. So excellent pick on all levels. Yay. My second pick is also another book that I read a long time ago, but one that I often recommend to people who like uh, books about authors and literature. So uh, the book is called Everybody Was So Young, Gerald and Sarah Murphy, A Lost Generation Love Story by Amanda Vale. And this book actually came out back in 1998, but I read it a few years ago and really liked it. And so this is uh, the story of Gerald and Sarah Murphy, who were this globetrotting, high-living socialites who were inspirations for artists like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Pablo Picasso who lived as expatriates during the Roaring Twenties and um, were kind of a central figures in the expat movement in, in Europe. So Gerald and Sarah Murphy were artists. Um, they lived in Paris, but also lived in other areas of France during that whole time. Um, they uh, summered with Picasso on the French Riviera. Uh, they watched bullfights with Hemingway. They were inspirations for tons and tons of different artists. They inspired them, but also like gave them places to stay and support and all of that kind of stuff for people like Dorothy Parker and Cole Porter and, like I said, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And so the book is about Gerald and Sarah Murphy, but it's also about that whole like artists community in France and Europe at that time, which is really fun. And I love, I think this is a great one for people who are like book nerds, because as you're reading it, it, all of these famous artists just kind of pop up and are like, oh, and then they ran into Gerald and Sarah Murphy and something happened. And you just feel like, oh, I'm getting this like very insider gossipy, like look at this whole community of people who kind of come in and out of each other's lives. And I remember really liking um, some of, again, like the descriptions of place and of all the kind of cool and fun places that Gerald and Sarah Murphy got to travel, um, the places where they lived and their homes, and just like the experiences that you could really only have as expats in the 1920s. Um, It's just a really kind of atmospheric and fun book in that way. So yeah, I just, I I read this one quite a while ago, and I, I recommend it to people who are book nerds a lot, because I think it's just a fun, fun read. So that is Everybody Was So Young. Gerald and Sarah Murphy, A Lost Generation Love Story by Amanda Vale. Okay, do you like reading about like people who were very involved in like a famous group who mm-hmm. are they themselves not famous? Yes. I will say though, don't you feel like that particular group of artists and writers was like very toxic and horrible? <laughs> yes, that is true. They were not like yeah, it was a, it was a rough rough crowd, that's for sure. Which makes it which makes it more interesting from a gossip angle for sure yes. because they were all like superly over dramatic. It's very gossip that you're that gossipy is a good word. I remember feeling that about the book that like people pop in and it's gossipy cuz like a lot of them are bad. <laughs> Interesting. I just like when you were saying Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Picasso, I was like, I don't like any of those guys. <laughs> However, <laughs> I would still read this book. So, huzzah. My last pick is A Stranger in the Village, Two Centuries of African-American Travel Writing by Farrah J. Griffin and Cheryl J. Fish, meaning they are the editors because it is a compilation of dispatches, diaries, memoirs, and letters by African-American travelers from the, quote, Wild West to Australia. I really like how this is split up, which, uh, well, first of all, Stranger in the Village, uh, the title comes from an essay by novelist James Baldwin that was uh, originally published in 1953, which was included in, if you've read Notes of a Native Son, then it's about, it's in there. So it's about his uh, experience in Switzerland. 
So it's included in this as, you know, it's one of the travel essays. But the book is split up into adventurers, missionaries and activists of the 19th century, and then uh, three places, so Africa, France, and Russia. Uh, And then truth seekers, statesmen, scholars, and journalists from 1930 to the civil rights era, which and that one includes like Angela Davis, Audre Lorde, Langston Hughes. And then the last is visitors, tourists, and others, which I just, the number of contributors they have is awesome. A lot of them I hadn't heard of before. And oh, in Adventures, they have Mary Seacole, who was a nurse who worked alongside uh, Florence Nightingale during the Crimean War and just had a very sort of storied life. And I just, I hadn't seen a book like this before. And I was really happy to find it. It came out in 1999. So doubtless by now, um, researchers have found like kind of like, you know, more documents that would be interesting to add. So hopefully, they'll do like a companion piece to it but yeah just really happy to find a travel book that again encompasses two centuries of travel writing by black americans so again that is a stranger in the village edited by farah j griffin and cheryl j fish that is an awesome pick to add yeah for sure that travel writing in particular is not very diverse. So I appreciate like putting that together because I think that's a really fascinating collection of people to to pull together. Very cool. Um, I have just one more pick, which is a book that's been on my shelf for a little bit that I think is going to come with me on my uh, 4th of July vacation. And that is called The Hour of the Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks by Terry Tempest Williams. Um, And this is a book that is a celebration of national parks. It's a bunch of kind of essays, and they um, share kind of the history of different national parks. Um, and then uh, Terry Thomas Williams write about her experiences visiting those different parks, the people she meets, um, different ideas about kind of landscape and nature and all of that kind of stuff. So it's part memoir, part natural history, part social exploration. And um, it just has this really beautiful writing. Um, Her descriptions of land and nature are so good. Like you can really kind of feel and see what she is describing in these different parks because they do reflect such different pieces of the United States. And then I also like it because it's about why we value, why we should value wild places and why our national parks are such a gift and such a treasure and why we should be supporting and protecting them rather than taking them apart. And I feel like that's something that's really nice to read about, especially like on a weekend when you're wanting to feel a little bit patriotic, like the national parks are just such a gift and it's such a good thing that we have managed to do. So um, it's one I'm going to bring with me because it feels like kind of the like boost that I particularly need right now. So uh, that is The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks by Terry Tempest Williams. Oh, that was so nice, Gail. (laughs) 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 You were just talking about like we should appreciate our parks. I was just feeling all like, oh, okay. Thank you for sharing that. We should appreciate our parks. All right. uh, And so with that, we will uh, conclude the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading right now or will be reading soon. One of the other non, I have a lot of fiction I'm bringing in this weekend, but the other, one of the other books that I'm bringing with me is Eliza Hamilton, The Extraordinary Life and Times of the Wife of Alexander Hamilton by Taylor Mazzo. Uh, and this is a biography of Eliza Hamilton, um, with, uh, Hamilton arriving on Disney Plus this week. I am excited that I'm going to watch that with my family. And every time I do anything with Hamilton, I always just want to know more about Eliza because she is the unsung hero of that story and of that musical in particular. And I think of Alexander Hamilton's story in general. So I have had this biography for a while. And I think hopefully after watching the Hamilton movie, I'm going to actually read it. 
Um, I was just talking to my fiance, Michelle, and we were watching the trailer for Hamilton and she was like, you know, I was like feeling pretty Hamilton out, but now I'm kind of back in. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, mm-hmm. feels right. Eliza, interesting. Yes. She, and also she gets some great songs mm-hmm. in the show. She helpless is, uh, helpless. Do the kids still say slaps? Can I say helpless <laughs> slaps? I think you can. I was told by one person that they heard from a, a young person that they don't say that anymore. So I don't even. Oh, I don't know either. Anyway, um, someone tell us. So, okay. My current read is fiction because I am just throwing everything at the wall until it sticks and I can finish a book. Uh, it is Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. I am a member of the Fantastic Strangelings book club run by Jenny Lawson. And... It's really fun. And sure, one of the picks was Catherine House, which is basically one of your sort of, not even typical, but you know that genre that's like, there's a new student, like a gothic boarding house, and there's mm-hmm. something going on at like, well, boarding house, I meant boarding school. And there's like something going on, and you don't know what, and then you find out, and it's exciting. Right. So this is that story. And it's really good so far, and her writing is uh, A+. plus. So I'm enjoying it. But again, that is Catherine House. Elizabeth Thomas. Uh, and with that, you can find us on social media. Tell us what words kids are saying now at It's Alice Time and Kim the Dork. And if you have a minute and feel so inclined, please take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Wheel Podcast. 